Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Sub-Saharan African Societies to 1600. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Kingdoms and Tribes. In our minds, we may have certain stereotypical views of African countries what are some stereotypical images or visions that you've heard or imagine? You may be thinking small rural villages, primitive housing, little clothing, quote, heathen religion, and a warlike people. In fact, these are misconceptions that were purposefully constructed over 500 years, first from the fanciful and exaggerated accounts by European adventurers and explorers, and then by slave traders and slave owners, which were continually recycled and retold to solidify the image of racial difference. In reality, Africa was filled with great kingdoms and large tribal confederations, many of which were loosely based on kinship and ethnic understandings, though these of course varied in different locations. While there were many political, economic, and cultural distinctions, African societies held some commonalities that we can elaborate on. For instance, the primary mode of production was lineage, or through domestic forms, using relatives and extended kinship networks to allocate labor for particular projects. In African society, as in later slave societies, women held a prime place, as they were not only performing productive labor, but also reproductive labor, producing new labor recruits, through giving birth. While commonalities existed, it appears that sub-Saharan Africans lacked specific ethnic, religious, or racial ideologies, but as we will see, their North African counterparts did not lack such imagination. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Trade. The traditional image of a poor, rural African village is not accurate. Africans had some of the most sophisticated finery, goods and clothing with ornate colors and cloth that many Europeans had never seen before. In fact, Europeans were struck by the purple and green cloths, which were a rarity in Europe. West African kingdoms and tribes conducted complex trade routes between various kingdoms in Europe and in the Middle East. An example of powerful African rulers in African lands is the Kingdom of Mali, famous for its trading center at Timbuktu, where the great and powerful king, Mansa Musa, led one of the greatest pilgrimages to Mecca, with 60,000 people and 80 camels bringing with him 300 pounds of gold. The point is that rather than the stereotype of the poor primitive village, we see that the empire of Mali has great wealth, power, sophistication, and influence over other states. Obviously, not all caravans were so rich, but typically, gold, salt, slaves, rice, and dyes flowed from Africa. These were usually exchanged for guns, textiles, wines, and other manufactured goods from Europe or across the Sahara from the Islamic states. It is important to note that in most cases, Islamic middlemen dominated the routes that heavily taxed European merchants. For centuries, 
African kingdoms took part in the trans-Saharan slave trade, sending desired persons overland to the caliphate. And we will discuss this more in the concept of Islamic slavery. After European contact, this grim business would shift directions to the Atlantic slave trade, an inhumane system of transporting Africans to the Caribbean, Central, South, and North American colonies to perform menial labor. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Slaveries. Slavery in Africa and the Caliphate was not what Americans are familiar with, based on our own history. African slavery and Islamic slavery hold key differences from one another and with later plantation slavery. However, their beginnings and evolutions will tell us about the development of slavery in the English colonies as we learn about it, and those will become even starker in contrast. So please advance to the next slide entitled, African Slavery. In African kingdoms, slavery had existed for centuries. Obviously, this had various starts and stops, but by and large, in Central and West Africa, slavery had existed for a few hundred years. Typically, slaves were war captives, the indebted and destitute, though they could also be peoples without kinship ties, the central binding aspect of African society. Slaves were not always enslaved for life. They had the ability to move up and down in society, though this could also be tied to ability, marriage, and other factors. Over time, slaves could accumulate property and status, even moving to higher offices, both as slaves and freedmen, but again, circumstances dictated this. Slavery was not racial, but tribal, with winners of wars wanting to remove high concentrations of captives from their own population. We have to ask ourselves, was this ethnic? We don't exactly know, but it appears that tribes took warriors and other persons from outside kinship or tribal groups and attempted to displace what they determined as dangerous internal threats. And it also seems clear that African slave traders kept women or charged higher prices because of their desirability. Now, can anyone guess why this might be the case based on the few descriptions of African society? Right. Reproduction and production. Dual roles that made women more valuable, as well as easier to incorporate into African societies through marriage. A free man could marry a slave and free her, but the opposite was not true. So what we see is that women are prized and male captives are viewed as internal threats, and thus you have an incentive to remove them. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Islamic Slavery. Let us preface this with an important point about the Muslim prophet Muhammad and his first Muzi'in, the man who called Muslims to prayer. He was an Abyssinian, a modern-day Ethiopian called Bilal ibn Rabah. Ibn Rabah was a companion of the prophet, a slave freed by Muhammad's uncle Abu Bakr. He had a beautiful voice and rose to prominence and is revered in Islam. Despite this beginnings of Africans' involvement in Islam, the later experiences will break from this early precedent. After the Islamic conquests, subsequent falls of various dynasties and the establishment of various geopolitical, economic, and political relationships, Islam engaged in various types of slavery. This did not have a specific starting or ending point, needless to say, 
Islamic slavery had existed even before the religion for centuries. Enslaved, African, European, and Asians were meant for specific types of labor, the sex trades, or armed service. The word Caucasian, meaning being derived from the Caucasus, is in a way from the Islamic Sultan's preference for women from the Caucasus in their harems, hence the term. Now in Islam, theoretically, slaves are people, with legal rights and protection, who cannot be murdered. Also, Muslims theoretically cannot be enslaved by other Muslims, though this does not always hold true. There are many differences between what are called Abids, or black slaves, and Mamelukes, or white slaves. Mamelukes were protected because they had a ransom value, or because they could be incorporated into the body politic as generals, advisors, and even rulers. But Abids were expendable menial labor, which took place all over the Muslim world. And so, in the end, it was African slaves who did the back-breaking labor throughout the caliphate. What was the justification for this? Oh, here's a quote. According to Said al-Andalus, quote, For those peoples who live near and beyond the equatorial line to the limit of the inhabited world in the south, the long presence of the sun at the zenith makes the air hot and the atmosphere thin. Because of this, their temperaments become hot and their humors fiery, their color black and their hair woolly. Thus, they lack self-control and steadiness of mind and are overcome by fickleness, foolishness, and ignorance. End quote. It is interesting to note that over 300 years later, American planters in the South will use the exact same environmental justification for slavery. So what we maybe see is that this climate theory is going to inform later stereotypes within the American experience. Now, regardless of the justifications, in Islamic slavery, people could be held throughout their lives, though depending on the slave owner and the state, you could attain your freedom at various costs. There are various estimates that project about 80,000 slaves from sub-Saharan Africa were transported to the Islamic world over about a 50-year period. However, other scholars suggest that this number could be as high as 150,000, and other historians speculate that a total of 4 million Africans were sold into Islamic slavery from 750 to 1500. A modern debate rages over whether or not Islamic slavery was racial or religious in nature. The Quran allowed for the enslavement of non-Muslims, though many Muslim Africans were enslaved as well. Christian Europeans and Asians were forcibly converted to Islam, and in addition, we see suggestions that Muslims across the caliphate held some sort of racial bias against Africans. Some scholars even speculate that these biases were incorporated into Spanish and Portuguese understandings of enslavement, which will help touch off plantation slavery across the Atlantic. The main point is that African and Islamic slaveries held various ideological and functions that, though by our ideals are biased, brutal, and abhorrent, they pale in comparison to later European plantation complex slavery. And we will discuss these later during our colonial slavery discussion, but the antecedents are here. Please advance to the next slide entitled, 
religion. African religions were very diverse. In West Africa, it was typically Islamic or animist, and we see an example of Islamic states like Mali and numerous others converting to Islam. Later, when European nations became involved in West Africa and East Africa, many of these areas would develop Christian minorities and majorities. Did you know that there were Christian kingdoms in Africa, which even had representatives to the Holy See, the Vatican? Well, an example of this is the Kingdom of the Congo, a highly stratified society that ruled over 50,000 square miles which is roughly the size of modern Alabama. In 1491, the Congo became a Christian kingdom when Nzinga Nkuwu converted to Christianity. His son Afonso solidified Christianity and established an education system in the country. Alfonso's son Enrique was educated in Portugal and was later appointed the Bishop of São Salvador by Leo X in 1518 becoming the first black bishop to the Vatican. By 1549, the great São Salvador Cathedral had been built, and this connected Africa to Europe. European kings were aware of this kingdom, enlisted King Alvaro II in his kingdom of the Congo alongside other great world powers like England, France, China, and Japan. Getting back to native African religion, they too believed in a spiritual world of animism. They held complex ceremonies and customs that could provide relief and cures. African religions contained a caste of wise men who could conduct these ceremonies. And Africans, like many, practiced a form of ancestor reverence that survives to this day. Taken together, African religions were not easily destroyed and would influence their descendants' beliefs in the New World for centuries. And as we will discuss later, African religions and customs survived through slavery in the New World colonies, even incorporating themselves into various cultural productions in the 13 colonies and beyond. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Gender. West Africans also held gender conventions that differed from European ones. Women played an active role in society. They sowed and harvested crops, and they partook in various religious, political, social, and military ceremonies. In numerous societies, the bureaucratic concept of the double took place, where women of the court shadowed all political figures to ensure that the will of the sovereign was being honored, and they also guarded access to the king. Various women performed significant political roles throughout their reigns. For example, there was one powerful female leader, Queen Njinga, who ruled the Central African states of Ndongo and Matamba in the 1600s. Before her reign, she was a noblewoman who effectively negotiated treaties with the Portuguese and forced them to treat her on equal terms. When she ascended to the throne of Ndongo, the Portuguese did not want to recognize her rule, though many of her subjects supported her. She spent the next few years fighting numerous wars of resistance against the Portuguese and their allies. Eventually, she secured rule of Ndongo and Ntamba, and she remains a symbol of resistance to European exploitation to this day in Angola. Men had other gender roles, such as plowing, 
hunting, and warfare. Naturally, Europeans would mistake these gender conventions and add them to a list of racial stereotypes which last to this day. Due to their role as warriors and hunters, Europeans believed African men were lazy. And since Europeans saw African women, even while pregnant in the fields, they determined that they had more strength and fortitude than African men and European women. As a result, Europeans were in awe of African beauty, but they also at the same time determined that they were not feminine. And think about it this way. The disgusting ways in which racists and haters criticized Michelle Obama's fitness, or the way that detractors criticized Serena Williams' appearance, her demeanor on the court, and her dominance of the sport in racially tinged language. Go ahead and look up this video of an Eastern European tennis player making fun of Serena, and the entire crowd just laughs. It's ridiculous, it's insensitive, it's abhorrent, and unfortunately, these stereotypes have their origins in the slave trade, and we grapple with them to this day. African companionship also seemed to confuse Europeans. While marriage in various forms existed, Europeans did not see similar rituals or symbolism that denoted such things. Thus, they regarded Africans as polyamorous. And while there is an element of polyamory in African as well as European and Indian society, it is over-exaggerated here. Lastly, Europeans openly and unabashedly fetishized African bodies and sexuality. They believed Africans to be sexually open and objectified their bodies in ways that would shock us to this day. For instance, an obsession with body part size. Thus, racial stereotypes that we deal with come from wildly exaggerated travel accounts written by Europeans, which are later seized upon by slave traders and slave owners to create the fantasy of racial inferiority that extends to this day. And it is all of our jobs to loudly decry it. Please advance to the next slide entitled, War in Society. Wars were conducted on small intertribal scales, but also on large-scale conflicts between kingdoms. War had numerous goals, such as increasing control over land and resources, acquiring slaves, and maintaining honor. War also held intricate spiritual elements, cultivated through religious ceremonies and offerings. Critically, demand for European goods helped fuel an increase in warfare in West and Central Africa. And a good example of this is the Kingdom of Dahomey on the Bight of Benin. Dahomey is also an example of an African religion called Vandu, whose spiritual legacy influenced the evolution of voodoo in the Americas. Dahomey saw a demand for slaves and waged wars of expansion to take slave ports on the coast in order to dominate the slave trade in the region. These wars against cities like Port Novo and Great Popo and modern-day Benin enlarged the kingdom and generated numerous slaves for the lucrative human trade. Wars of expansion are lucrative, but over time, more territory requires more forts, more troops, more arms, and all of this costs money. Expansion and slavery can bring income, but eventually the costs of security outweigh the benefits, and the bottom falls out of the tub. Ultimately, 
continual wars in Central and West Africa would take the lives of 2 million Africans on top of the estimated 12 million Africans who are enslaved. These twin factors devastate the landscape and destabilize the region. The point is that you cannot lose 12 to 20 million people and be okay afterwards. You will experience a brain drain, the loss of labor, potential leadership, and etc. How many Einsteins and Caesars were sold into slavery? We will never know. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all making smart decisions and staying safe. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.